I knew I was in trouble. Recently, I like to jog a little bit, and recently I had a little injury, nagging injury, that kept me from jogging, so I stopped jogging for a while to try to heal up, and uh, we were recently on vacation with our family in Florida, and I decided to start running again, got some new running shoes, and put my new running shoes on, and I went out on my first jog in about two months, and I was about a mile into the jog, and I was feeling great, felt good to exercise again and get out there, and I was just enjoying myself so very much. And then I heard a dog bark. Now, I was in the country, and you need to understand, country dogs are different than city dogs. And, and I, I was running down the road, and these two dogs came running up from this house, and I knew I was in trouble. There's, you can just tell when a dog's about to bite you. And I could tell I was about to get bitten. Sure enough, these two dogs ran up. The lady in the house was screaming at them, but one of them bit me and ran off. I got bit by a dog. Really? It really happened. You feel sorry for me? It hurt. I knew I was in trouble. So here I was enjoying myself, and I got bit. Well, we've been studying Paul, and we've been walking with him through his first missionary journey. And that missionary journey was fraught with peril. He endured persecution, rigorous travel. But at the end of chapter 14 in Acts, Paul returned to home base, his home church of Antioch. He comes back, he reports about all that God had done, and he settles in teaching and preaching And you can just tell he's enjoying his time there in Antioch, reconnecting with his church family. But we're going to see that Paul was about to feel the bite of legalism. And this issue that we're going to study became a major issue in the church. It became a test for the church to deal with. We're going to see how the church dealt with this test. So keeping that in mind, turn with me to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. We'll begin reading in verse 1, Acts chapter 15, verse 1. As we continue our study, line by line, verse by verse, this wonderful New Testament book. I'm going to ask you this morning, if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Truth with no mixture of error. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. The Bible says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. They were teaching people in the church in Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas were located at this time. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, they were teaching, you cannot be saved. That's legalism. They were adding on to salvation. You need Jesus plus circumcision to truly be saved. That's what these people were teaching. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary, here it is again, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. In other words, when someone in the Gentile world places their faith in Christ, if they really want to be right with God, they need to place their faith in Christ and also keep the law of Moses, the Old Testament law. They need to be circumcised as well. Verse 6, here's the test, here's how they dealt with it. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Let's pray together. 
Father, we pause to give you glory. We pause, Lord, to ask for your help. Lord, we believe that all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. So would you move in our midst by your Spirit? Would you open the eyes of our hearts that we might see the truths of Scripture and understand the truths of Scripture and apply the truths of Scripture to our lives? God, would you move with power? May we, may we leave today knowing we have met with the living God. And we'll thank you for that grace. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As Paul and Barnabas are settled in enjoying themselves in the church in Antioch, they feel the bite from false teaching. They feel the bite of legalism, people trying to add on to the gospel. And this is an important test for the early church because we've, we've watched the early church grow. Uh, in exponential ways, the gospel has spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the Gentile world. We've seen God move in remarkable ways and people getting saved. And now they were going to have to settle this doctrinal test if they were going to, going to continue to be effective in reaching the world with the good news. And so this passage, Acts 15, 1-35, describes how the early church handled an important test. Uh, your Bible may say right above verse 15, the Jerusalem Council. This is the first major council of the church as they consider this doctrinal issue. And so what I want to do is I want to highlight from this passage as we walk through the council three things that are important for us to grasp hold of today. Three highlights from this passage. Number one, this passage highlights the nature of the gospel, what the good news really is. It addresses how a person is saved. And hey, listen to me. Is there any more important question than that? How is a person saved? That's what this issue is all about. And here's why they had to meet as a council. Because men, and you can follow along with me in your notes, men were adding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It says there in verse 1 that they were saying, these teachers from Judea, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Verse 5, they said it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So they were adding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, here's what Warren Wearsby says about this false teaching that, that they need to be saved by trusting in Jesus and doing other things. Wearsby writes, What were these legalists actually doing and why were they so dangerous? He writes, They were stitching up the rent veil and blocking the new and living way to God that Jesus had opened when he died on the cross. They were rebuilding the wall between Jews and Gentiles that Jesus had tore down on the cross. They were putting the heavy Jewish yoke on Gentile shoulders and asking the church to move out of the sunlight into the shadows. They were saying a Gentile must first become a Jew before he can become a Christian. It is not sufficient for them to simply trust Jesus Christ. They must also obey Moses. Since they were adding to salvation, Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus keeping the Old Testament law. And this is a perversion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the, the, the church had to settle this. They had to be crystal clear on how a person is saved. So Paul and Barnabas, authorized by the church in Antioch, goes down to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles, the elders, to settle this issue once for all, to declare what salvation is really all about. And it's important for us as a church, as individual Christians, to settle this issue as well. And it's important that we understand the gospel because, listen to me, there will always be people, always, who try to add on to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus plus something else. 
And that is not what the Bible teaches about salvation. As a matter of fact, if you look there on your notes, salvation is a gift from God that anyone can receive by faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation is a gift from God that anyone can receive by faith in Jesus Christ. And and here's how they came to this conclusion or how they emphasized this in the Jerusalem Council. Look what it says in verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider the matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Remember, God gave Peter a vision to go to the Gentile world, to go to Cornelius and his household, a Gentile Roman soldier, and preach the gospel to to that family. And he says in verse 8, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So here's what Peter says. I went to the household of Cornelius. I preached about Jesus. They believed in Jesus. Jesus, And at that moment, God gave them the gift of the Holy Spirit, signifying that they were truly converted. They were truly saved. They didn't try to keep the law of Moses. They, They didn't sign up for circumcision. They just believed in Christ. And at that moment, they were saved. So we should not add... To salvation. God saves the Gentiles by faith. God saves the Jews by faith. That's what salvation is all about. Look what he says in the next verse, verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? In other words, Peter's saying, do you really want to say that you have to keep the law to be saved because you can't keep the law perfectly? I can't keep the law perfectly. You weren't able to keep it. And you're trying to put this burden on the Gentile world? No, that's not how it should work. Look what he says next. But we believe, I love this verse, but we believe, Peter says, that we will, we, we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Peter reiterates, we believe salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not something you work for. It's not something you achieve. It's a gift from God that you receive by faith. And we need to settle that, don't we? Salvation is by grace. It's not by works. You are saved by faith in Christ and receiving that free gift of eternal life. We need to settle that because there's always going to be people, denominations, churches, teachers, that try to add on to the simple gospel of grace. And Peter says, hey, listen, I've been to the Gentile world. I've preached the gospel. God saved them by faith. So why in the world would we add the yoke of the law? Jesus fulfilled the law. We no longer have to live according to the law. Why would we put this yoke on Gentile believers. And so this passage highlights the nature of the gospel. And, I, and you say, wait, what does Longview Point believe about how a person is saved? Well, I could just quote to you verse 11. Look in verse 11. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. That's what we believe. It's a gift of God's grace that we receive by faith in the finished work of Christ. We're not saved by doing something. We're saved by believing that Jesus has already done it all to save us. And we trust in his finished work. We rest in his finished work. That's what saving faith is, right? So this this council deals with the nature of the gospel, and that's highlighted in this passage. But there's a second thing I want you to see that's highlighted in this passage, and it deals with selflessness for the good of others. Selflessness for the good of others. Uh, Let me show you what happens In verse 12, after Peter speaks, 
All the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Talking about a, talking about a, a heavyweight meeting, you've got, you've got Peter, you've got Paul and Barnabas. We're going to hear from James in just a moment. And it says in verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied. Now, this is not James, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee. Uh, that James was martyred in Acts chapter 12 by Herod. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was a, uh, a significant leader in the church in Jerusalem. And it says, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. He quotes the Old Testament here. After this, I will return, I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. James is saying, it ought not to surprise us that God is saving Gentiles, because he said in the Old Testament over and over again that he was going to save Gentiles, non-Jews. So this, this is biblical, that this is happening in our world. Then look what he says in verse 19. Therefore, this is interesting, My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now, when James gives these these words in verse 20, is he adding to salvation? The answer is no. He is dealing with how Gentile Christians should, should, should respond or how they should relate to the Jewish people in their city. That's, that's what he's dealing with in this verse. And so the leaders of the church, starting with James, reminded the people of a command to obey. Now there's a command here, not to be saved, but because you are saved. Look what it says in verse 20. We should write to them to abstain from the, sex, the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality. So this is a command, it's all over the Bible, that, that, that we should be morally pure, we should abstain from immoral things. And he, he takes his command and says, let's remind the Gentile Christians to abstain from sexual immorality. So why, out of all the commands that James could have chosen, why does he choose the one related to sexual immorality? Because of the context in which the Gentile Christians were living. They were living in pagan cities that were filled with debauchery, that were filled with with rampant sexual immorality. And so these new believers in Christ need to be reminded, hey, that's your old life. Don't do what you used to do. You're a follower of Christ now. Obey him. Let your light shine. Don't participate in those deeds of darkness that you used to participate in. Because they were surrounded by so much immorality, they needed to be reminded of this command. Now, listen. Are we surrounded by immorality in our culture today? You better believe it. And I think it's time as the church that we start reminding each other of this command. That we ought to abstain from sexual immorality. Because there are temptations everywhere to give in. And and go back to our old way of living, our old way of thinking, our old way of speaking. We've got to be reminded that followers of Christ don't participate in deeds of darkness. We, 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 we've left that old life behind. We've left our old self behind. Now we want to live a life that is, that is upright and pure and glorifies God as we maintain morality, particularly in the area of sexual ethics. It's a big deal because the church is being tested. Your, your kids are being tested. Your marriage is being tested. 
And we've got to remind each other in the church, abstain from sexual immorality. And you say, wait, can you be more specific? Well, I can. The Bible teaches that sexual intimacy is a gift from God that is to be enjoyed in the loving boundaries of marriage between one man and one woman. That's what the Bible teaches. That's the the whole of the Bible's teaching. So anything that takes place outside of the bonds of marriage between one man and one woman is sexual immorality. That's adultery. That's sex before marriage. Shacking up. Homosexuality. Pornography. That, that's immorality. And it's time that you and I remind each other that God has called us to purity. Amen? God has called us to holiness. This is not some some standard that is beyond our reach. Listen, young people, God has given you the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, the body of Christ. He's given all of us that so that we can live pure lives. But we need to be reminded that we don't give in to the ways of the world. And he said, hey, remind the Gentile believers, hey, I know you're surrounded by so much debauchery, so much immorality. Remind them to say no to sexual immorality and live a pure life. So there's a command here that, that, that James wanted the Christians in the Gentile world to obey. But secondly, the leaders of the church encouraged the people to make some concessions. There's a command, but there are also some concessions that he wanted them to make. Look what it says in verse 20. We should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual morality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. In other words, saying to the Gentile world, hey, listen, the Jews eat kosher food. They eat food that the blood has been drained. Uh, and, and in the Gentile world, it's, it's, it's uh, often that you eat food from an animal that's been strangled. The blood's still in the meat. And, and, and it's often in the Gentile world that, that you'll eat food that was offered at a pagan temple, but the leftovers were sold in the marketplace. You go to the marketplace and buy the meat and you eat it. So his point is this. Abstain from that food that still has the blood in it that's not kosher according to the Jewish law. Make some concessions. Now, why would James say this? Why would he want the Gentiles to keep the Old Testament dietary laws? Why is this a, a big deal? He did away with the dietary laws over in Acts chapter 11 with Peter. Remember the sheet and the vision and all of that? Don't call unclean what God has cleansed. So why is he reemphasizing some of the dietary laws? Well, this is a concession. Listen, these concessions would remove unnecessary barriers to reaching Jews with the gospel. Did you notice what he said there in verse 21? For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogue. So he's saying, whatever city you live in as a Gentile believer, there are probably some Jews there. They're in every city. And if you want to reach them with the gospel, you need to abstain from meat that has been strangled or offered to idols at a pagan temple. This is a concession that would remove unnecessary barriers to reaching Jews with the gospel. In other words, he said, you're going to Jewish families, Jewish people, their whole life they've been taught to eat kosher food. And if you take to their house or invite them to your house and you bring out some food that was offered at a pagan temple... And, and then it was left over and you bought it from the marketplace or it was strangled, the blood was not drained. If you offer it, that's going to be highly offensive and they're not going to hear a word you have to say about Jesus. So make this concession. Don't eat what they consider unclean so that you can have 
a, a bridge into their life to share Jesus Christ. That, that's what's happening here. It's not wrong to eat food from an animal that's been strangled. As a matter of fact, or eat food that's been sold in the marketplace that was first offered to idols. As a matter of fact, over in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul deals with this issue. And he says there, it, it is okay to eat that with some, with some parameters. He's saying, make a concession for the Jewish people that need to hear about Jesus. Because if you're eating these foods with the blood still in them, the Jews aren't going to hear a word you have to say. That's what he's saying. Now let me illustrate this to kind of drive it home. We have a family from our church that is living in South Asia right now, Trey and Megan and their kids. And and they're in a predominantly Hindu culture. Now Hindus... Uh, believe that cows are sacred animals. So they don't kill cows. They don't eat beef. They believe they're sacred. As a matter of fact, I've been there a couple of times, and when you're in, in that country, uh, in that area of the world, cows are just roaming free down the street. Cars pull over to let the cow through. That's what it's like, because they believe that cows are sacred animals. Now, can Trey and Megan eat a hamburger and not sin? I hope so, Right? <laughs> Yeah, they can eat a hamburger and not sin. There's nothing, there's nothing unclean about the hamburger. Should Trey and Megan invite a Hindu family over to grill out hamburgers? Of course not. You know why? Nothing wrong with eating a hamburger, but when those Hindu, those, that Hindu family gets there and they see them grilling beef, they're not going to hear a word they have to say about Jesus. It's putting up an unnecessary barrier. You, you understand that? So saying, make a concession. Hey, you can eat that meat and not sin. But, but just, just lay down your freedom so that you don't put up an unnecessary barrier to reaching Jews with the gospel. That's what he's saying. And also, these concessions of not eating meat that had been strangled or meat that had been sold uh, in the marketplace that was first offered at a pagan temple, these concessions would help to maintain unity in the churches. Look what he says. Look what it says in verse 22. It seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. So they're mail carriers now with a letter from the Jerusalem council. Here's the letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions... It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. Here's the concession. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, And from what has been strangled, and here's the command, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, these, you will do well, farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, having gathered the congregation together. They delivered the letter, and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in, what's that word? Peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So they take this letter and they say, listen, you don't have to keep the law to be saved. You don't have to get circumcised to be saved. It's faith in Christ that saves. But we are asking that you remember the important command to abstain from sexual immorality. And we're asking that you make some concessions where you don't eat food that was first sacrificed to idols or you don't eat food that has the blood still in it. We ask you to make some concessions 
for unity in the church. Because here's what was happening. Gentiles were getting saved and Jews were getting saved. And they started meeting together and fellowshipping with one another. And the leaders in the Jerusalem church understood that if the Gentiles callously ate food that was bought from the marketplace that was first offered to idols, it would be greatly offensive to these, these Jewish believers that had spent their whole life avoiding that kind of food. And it would cause conflict in the church. So he's saying to the Gentile world, hey, you can eat the food and not sin, but lay down your freedom for unity in the body of Christ. He's calling them to selflessness. Now let me give you an illustration of how, what this might look like in today's time. Let's say that there's a certain person that you know that grew up in a very um, strict environment and they were taught from their earliest years that all dancing is sinful and evil. They've been taught you ought never to dance. Dancing is of the devil. Don't dance. All right? And they get saved. This person you know, they get saved. They come to Christ. And you want to fellowship with them. You want to spend some time with them. You want to help them to grow and encourage them. Now, question. Can you ballroom dance and not sin? I mean, it's not. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. Right? You can, you can ballroom dance for the glory of God. You can learn the waltz and all that kind of stuff. You, you can ballroom dance for the glory of God. Now, when you come across this new believer that's been raised their whole life to te- being taught that all dancing, all dancing is evil, should you invite them over for ballroom dancing lessons? No. They need some time to grow, don't they? To process and think through their background and learn God's word and apply it to their life. They need some time to grow. And so if, if the first thing you do to a new believer that's been taught that all dancing is evil is invite them to ball, ballroom dancing lessons, it's probably going to cause conflict, isn't it? Listen, unnecessary conflict. So be selfless. Lay down your love for ballroom dancing if it's out there. Lay it down and, lay it down and say, hey, for your good, I, I'm not going to invite you to do that. I'm not going to push that on you. You see what I'm saying here? That's what James and the, the leaders in Jerusalem were saying to the Gentile believers. Lay down your rights for the good of others. Let me say it like this. Christians need to be willing to give up permitted things when other believers' spiritual health is at stake. Let me say it again. Christians need to be willing to give up permitted things when other believers' spiritual health is at stake. Let me give you another example, another illustration to kind of drive this point home. Let's just say that you know a, uh, a gentleman, and uh, he's recently converted. And he was converted from a life of, of rampant drug abuse. He, he, he abused drugs and, and uh, was involved in that lifestyle, but Jesus saved him, forgave him, and delivered him, gave him freedom from that bondage to substance abuse. That'd be a glorious thing, right? Glorious thing. And let's just say that, and I'm, I'm making this up, so let's just, I'm just a, a hypothetical situation. Let's just say that every time this, this gentleman who was delivered from a life of drug use, let's just say every time he used drugs, he listened to Eric Clapton. All right? Well-known singer, Eric Clapton. Now, question. Are there some Eric Clapton songs you can listen to and not sin? Depends on the song. All right? I mean, you like his guitar playing, he's a gifted guy. And, and you can listen to an Eric Clapton song and, and not sin. All right? When you have this guy over for dinner, should you break out your Eric Clapton albums? Should you? No. And take him back to his past? Take him back to that place where he was miserable and in bondage? 
and, and, and it caused him to relive all of that stuff, he's probably not ready for that yet, right? Do you have the freedom to listen to Eric Clapton? Yes, you do. Should you all the time around every... No. You, 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 get, you, you live in selflessness. You lay down your, your rights for the good of others, for their spiritual health. That's what he's saying here, to maintain unity in the body of Christ. Here's what David Peterson writes, New Testament scholar. As Christians wrestled with the question of the law's ongoing relevance and application, reflecting on Christ's own teaching and the events by which he inaugurated the new covenant, there was need for sensitivity and generosity on all sides. This is a big deal. Jews and Gentiles worshiping together, eating together, hanging out together. This is a big deal. And they needed to be sensitive to each other if there was going to be unity in the body of Christ. This passage highlights the nature of the gospel. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it also highlights the need for selflessness for the good of others. You know what keeps the church unified? Selflessness. You know what will destroy a church? Selfishness. And so we see this call for selflessness in the body of Christ. But there's a third thing I want you to see and we'll be through. The third thing is this. Highlighted in this passage is the government of the church. The government of the church. I want you to see how they came to a final conclusion and made a decision to send a letter to the Gentile believers in verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, the, the, the leaders had met together, which with the whole church, they came and brought their conclusions to the, the congregation of believers. And it seemed good to the leaders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. We see how the church came to a decision. I believe what's being taught here is a congregational form of church government. Now, I could talk about church government, and it's a whole different sermon and different sermon series even. There are different forms. There's elder form of church government and hierarchical form of church government with bishops and archbishops and all of that. But I believe the Bible teaches a simple congregational form of church government. So wait, what do you mean by congregational church government? Here's what I mean. The New Testament church functioned with a balance. Everyone say Balance with a balance of strong leadership and congregational approval. Strong leadership, congregational approval. Did you notice the leadership there? It seemed good to the apostles and the elders. Did you notice the congregational approval with the whole church? The leader said, here's what what we're going to do. And the church said, that sounds good. We'll follow your leadership. Let's do it. That is congregational church government. And when a church gets unbalanced, that's when they get into trouble. For example, if a church gets unbalanced towards the area of of leadership, strong leadership, it can get into trouble. If leadership becomes autocratic and says, hey, it's my way or the highway, you don't like it, leave. When a church gets like that, the leadership gets like that, you're heading for trouble, right? Lack of accountability, it's just that's not a healthy situation. It's not a biblical situation. And a church can get out of balance and get in a lot of trouble with autocratic dictatorial leadership. Or it can get out of balance with, with congregation, uh, congregations deciding every little issue, dealing with every issue that comes up. For example, I have a good pastor friend down in Florida, and he was a pastor of a, a church in North Florida, and he was in the uh, pastoring, and he saw that in the Sunday school area they needed a coffee pot. He went to Walmart and bought a coffee pot. The next business meeting, someone stood up and said, Who authorized that coffee pot purchase? And the church 
began to fight about coffee pots. And finally, the pastor walked up, and there's you know, the Lord's Supper table right there. He walked up and took out $20 and put it down and said, I'll buy the coffee pot. So the fight would stop. But see, that's, that's, that's silly, isn't it? That the congregation is, is deciding on coffee pots. You don't have time for that, do you? No. It just, it just breeds conflict and, and, and misunderstanding, and, and it doesn't allow leaders to lead. And so I believe the biblical model is balance between strong leadership and congregational approval. So here's how that applies here at the point. At the point, uh, when, when we buy land or build a building or hire a ministerial staff member or pass the budget for the year, uh, the leadership works and, and studies and seeks God's wisdom and leadership and tries to apply biblical principles to all of this and then comes to the church and says, here's what we believe we need to do. This is our conclusion, and the church says, hey, we hear you, we think that's a wise decision, we approve, let's move forward, and let's get it done for the glory of God. That's a biblical picture of, of, of church government, congregational form of church government. Which, by the way, Baptist churches, for the most part, are congregational, uh, have a congregational form of church government, and we don't want to get unbalanced. So what we see here in the church is they have a, a, a test to pass. They have an issue they need to deal with. They deal with it in a very wise way. Strong leadership, congregational approval, all on the same page, moving forward with unity to change the world with the gospel. That's the picture in the New Testament. That's the picture we ought to try to emulate as a local church. So we've talked about the nature of the gospel. We've talked about selflessness for the good of others. We've talked about the government of the church. And here's the point of this all. Here's how I want to sum it up for you. There are issues that we, Christians, our church, that we must settle if we are going to be faithful in proclaiming and living out the gospel. There are issues we must settle, like the nature of the gospel, like laying down our rights for the good of others, like moving forward in unity for the glory of God. These are issues we must settle if we're going to be effective in reaching our community and reaching our world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the church in Jerusalem gives us a great model to follow. This is a significant passage of Scripture. You think about that.